Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. Today is Friday. January 13th, 2023. <laughs> this is Shannon. And tonight I'm here with Stacy and Georgina. We are not doing a creepy episode, even though it's Friday the 13th and we should be. We are instead talking about the wonderful world of historical romances. Stacy went on a historical binge recently. And so it seemed like a great time for an episode. So we will get started with the housekeeping information, then I will start us off, followed by Stacy and then Georgina. You can find us on Facebook by searching for the Book Bistro podcast. Once there, you can post to our timeline. You can also message us privately. If you want a more social interaction, you can join our Facebook listener group, which is pretty quiet at the moment, though we are looking at some ways of possibly revamping it. If Facebook is not your thing and you still would like to hang out with us, check us out on our WhatsApp group. You can subscribe to that either by messaging us through Facebook or by sending us an email and one of us will be happy to add you. If you're looking to get a hold of us via email, you can do that by contacting the Book Bistro Podcast at gmail.com. So my first book tonight was written in 2020, and it is The Duke Who Didn't, Wedgeforth Trials, book one by Courtney Milan. Now, this is listed as book one in a series, but I've not seen like book two or even reference to book two. So I'm not sure if it's actually going to end up remaining a standalone. But this is, if you like the whole grumpy sunshine trope, this will work for you. However, it's the hero who is the sunshine here. And I kind of like those sometimes. I feel like I get tired and, and Stacy will like crucify me here very soon. I get tired of always like the, the grumpy heroes. So I kind of like to see like the nice, you know, very <laughs> happy um, heroes occasionally. So our heroine here is Chloe, and she lives with her father in the village of Wedgford. And her father is a chef. And this village is like they have a festival that happens like every year and they call it the Wedgford trials. And it has all these like games and cooking contests and like just all these things that make it like a really special place. Now, Chloe has lived there for quite a while and her childhood best friend was this young man that everybody referred to as Posh Jim. And his actual name is Jeremy. And he is no one knows this, but he is a Duke sort of in disguise. So he and Chloe kind of grew up, you know, best friends, and he has always had a crush on Chloe and he wants to marry her now. But Chloe is a very serious, very organized person. 
Um, she likes things to go a certain way. Um, she owes like a lot of allegiance to her father and she feels like, you know, she needs to have her life go in this sort of prescribed way. And Jeremy, also known as Posh Jim, is not, he's not like this at all. He is very spontaneous. Um, you know, he's, he's hiding a pretty big secret. Like he is a duke and he actually, quote unquote, owns this village that everyone lives in. But he really just wants to be accepted as just a, a regular person, not a duke. And so he never tells anyone who he is. And this, of course, will come back to bite him because, like, how do you want to marry someone and you're going to make them a duchess and, like, they, they don't know who you are, really. And so this is, this is a problem. So three years before our story begins, Chloe tells Jeremy that really, like, if he wants to be in her life and he wants to be, like, serious about her, like he needs to make some changes and not just be this, like what she views as kind of irresponsible, spontaneous person. After she tells him that, he disappears for three years, which basically just cements everything that she's always thought that like, you know, he doesn't know how to be an adult. He doesn't know how to be serious. He doesn't care about anything deeply. And this actually isn't true. Like you get to see things from Jeremy's perspective and you realize that this is not actually who he is but it's a persona that he cultivates for reasons that I will not tell you. He comes back three years later with a plan to woo Chloe and eventually marry her. Um, and this causes a lot of problems as you would imagine, because Chloe feels very betrayed by his disappearance. You know, he just like vanished. She never, she didn't hear from him for three years. She kind of grieved his loss in her life and also is now, you know, trying to figure out like how she's going to go on without his presence. And she has, or at least she thinks she has until he comes back. And so over the course of this festival, he sets out to woo her. And what follows is like typical Courtney Milan greatness. Um, there's lots of great banter. The small town, like village spirit here is phenomenal. This is like, I think one of the best locations of a book, um, that I I've read, you know, that's like outside of London, you don't have like some of the, you know, big city like stuff going on. It's just this lovely, charming, small town with so much heart and so much character and the supporting cast is fantastic. The couple has great chemistry, although you have to kind of give them a little bit of time to sort of settle back into being together, um, especially Chloe. But this is just an excellent, excellent book. I really hope that Milan writes more in this, in this setting because it is phenomenal. This is The Duke Who Didn't. Wedgford Trials, book one by Courtney Milan. So with all of my historicals, even though I have several of her books on my TBR and I actually have a couple that I've bought, I still have not read a Courtney Milan. And I think I need to rectify that. I think she's an amazing author based on what I've read, like in reviews. Mm -hmm. And also it's not quite as, you know, potted palms and fluttering fans as some other <laughs> right 
like her brother's sinister series i will always say is like some of the best historical romance like written in like the the 2000s so when i talk about historical romance i always say and it's so annoying because like i feel like a broken record but I'm not a fan of like the potted palms and the ballrooms and all of that. Like I get really bored by like the Regencies and all of that. But Mm. what I do like, I know, and I know they have their place and so many love them and I, I love them in moderation, but what I really, really enjoy are books that kind of focus on other aspects of history Yes. And my first book is Daring and the Duke, and it's Bare Knuckle Bastards book three by Sarah McLean. This is the first trilogy I've actually read by Sarah McLean. And what I liked about this trilogy is it focuses on the Covent Garden rookeries of London. So it's not all about the ballrooms and the potted palms and the fans and the gowns. It's about people living and surviving in a very rough and dark area of London. And I'm sorry to focus on the third of the trilogy, but this was my favorite book because it focuses on Grace, who's kind of been in hiding for years. And Grace came to London with her two brothers of the heart under some pretty sort of fraught circumstances when she was a a young teen. And in order to survive, Grace, along with her, her brothers of the heart, learned how to fight in a ring. So bare knuckle fighting in order to kind of find her place and to gain notoriety. And now she, you know, it's been like, I'd say two decades since she came to London. And now she is the proprietress and owner of a very exclusive London club. But unlike so many other London clubs, this club caters to women. It's all about women and their pleasure. And so the working people of the club are primarily men with Grace's group of, I know, right? With Grace's group of fighting women who are the, you know, um, the ones who like manage the, the club, the cl- no, oh. her women who manage the club. There's a group of women who all know how to fight, who are like the bouncers and the managerial oh. people. They're all women, which I, I find wonder. totally fascinating because in this era, obviously in the 1800s, women were not seen as having any agency. And so these women of the aristocracy who come to Grace's club, she's known as Dahlia, Dahlia. Um, it's, it's, it's a very confidential experience for them, but it, it brings every fantasy they have to life. Oh, and I love wow. that about this book. I love that the women are in control and the men are the ones who are showing the women their fantasies or the women are showing the women their fantasies, depending on what they want. So now Grace is like the queen of the Covent Garden rookeries and of the darker corners of London. And she can fight anyone there is. She is like this woman of shadowy power. But from her past comes back Ewan, the 
the Duke of Marwick, who was her first love during a very tumultuous time in her like very young adulthood. And he's been looking for her for almost two decades now. And now that he's found her, he doesn't want to let her go. And this is their story. And while I enjoyed their romance and, you know, how that all worked out, what I love the most is how this woman in a time when women were seen as chattel and things to be traded and, you know, like the ones that make the advantageous marriages, Grace was living a different life altogether in that showing women that they actually had power and they had agency. And that is the part of this book that I love the most. And so if you want to read something that takes place um, kind of during this Regency Victorian era, it just takes place um, probably about a year after Queen Victoria um, ascended to the throne. Is that how you say that? Took the throne, mm-hmm. ascended. Took the throne, um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's it's right in the very beginning of the Victorian era. So like 18, what, 38, 39. But it's when women were very slowly beginning to learn that they actually had power of their own. And that was my favorite part of this. Um, I would actually recommend that you start at the beginning with Wicked and the Wallflower, which is the first Bare Knuckle Bastards book where you get to know the brothers and Grace. But this is the final conclusion of the series. And it is Daring and the Duke, Bare Knuckle Bastards book three by Sarah McLean. And it was really, really unexpectedly amazing. I have been trying to find a trilogy of McLean's that I think I would like, like a lot of her synopses sound good, but like the things that I've tried, I've never really fallen into. Um, But I think I'm going to give this one a try. My first book of the evening is Outlander by Diana Gavlin. And we have Claire Beecham Brandle who is on her second honeymoon with her husband, Frank. And they decide to go to Scotland since the war, 1945, has just ended. They got married briefly during the war, had a week's um, honeymoon, and then they had to get back to their respective posts. She was a nurse and he was an MI6 agent. Um, And so they're in Scotland when Claire and Frank decide to visit a thing of druids and they're dancing on the hill and um, they're watching these women who are dancing around in bedsheets calling down the sun, which is um, quite interesting for a bunch of middle-aged Scottish women. When... um, Once the ceremony is over, they decide to go back to their boarding house where they're staying. And she can't get this one herb out of her mind that she's been seeing in the stone when Frank innocently tells her to go back and retrieve it, which sends Claire's world upside down because she ends up in 1745 (laughs) um, when she walks through a that same um, standing stones. And at first Claire thinks that she's hitting her head or that she's run into a troop of people who are acting 
who are making a movie, um, it becomes apparent that she is not when she gets um, into an argument with a red coat. And so um, she is rescued by a man who looks like a monkey. That's her description, not mine. Um, and he proceeds to take her to a group of men who are harboring another man whose arm is dislocated. And this runs through Claire's adventure. She, all she wants is to get back to the stones and to her husband, Frank. Um, but she ends up um, on quite a bit of adventures during her time in, in Scotland. Um, so in that, um, when she sees the group of men who have the man with the dislocated shoulder, his name is Jamie and her and Jamie develop a friendship and both of them, I, well, Claire has feelings for Jamie, which puts her in conflict with feeling guilty because she still is married to Frank. And so now she has a choice to get back to the standing zones in 1945 to Frank or to stay with Jamie in 18th century Scotland. This is Outlander by Diana Gabaldon. And it is the first of nine books so far. She is currently writing the 10th. We shall see how that goes. I've only read Outlander. <laughs> oh, see, I've read the first three and I okay. loved, I loved this one and I love Dragonfly and Amber. So my next pick tonight, I think dovetails very nicely off of Outlander, um, partly because it is compared to it a lot. Now, I will be very honest and say that I love this series more than I did the Outlander books that I've read, but I also haven't read, you know, all of the Outlanders, so that may not be a, a fair um, opinion to have. So this is Into the Wilderness, the Wilderness Saga, book one by Sarah Donati. And people always say that if you love Outlander, you should read this series. And I, I would agree with that. It is this first book that I'm going to talk about, I think, has like the huge romantic arc. And then the rest of the series becomes this phenomenal family saga um, with Elizabeth and Nathaniel's love story, like always at its core. So Elizabeth is an English woman in like the late 1700s, and she ends up coming to America with her father. He is like an investor. He wants to sort of settle this, this colony, and they're in what would later become like our New York. And he has this dream that Elizabeth will marry a doctor and she'll become like this rich, you know, American woman. But what else, what ultimately ends up happening is that Elizabeth falls for Nathaniel. And Nathaniel is a man who was raised 
by Native Americans. So he's very in tune with like the Native American way of life. Um, there are a lot of questions in the first book as to like his actual heritage. Like, is he Native American? You know, people wonder this. People kind of are suspicious of him because of his because of his close ties to the Native American community. And as we know, white people did not um, treat the Native Americans well at all. And you see this in quite a bit of detail um, in this, you know, in this series. But Elizabeth and Nathaniel fall in love. And Elizabeth is kind of torn, you know, she doesn't like this doctor that her father wants her to marry. And I don't blame her because he's kind of a yuckety individual. But she also, you know, isn't sure, like, does she want to, like, you know, disappoint him? Does she want to fly in the face of convention? Ultimately, she decides that she does. And she and Nathaniel start a relationship. And they are forced, because people don't like the idea of a white woman living with Native Americans, to kind of disappear into the wilderness for a period of time and basically wait out all of this, like, rancor that people have. Eventually, they return um, to Nathaniel's people, and you kind of get to see how Elizabeth works to straddle like both sides of this line. So she has some allegiance to some of the white settlers, but she also has come to understand over the course of the book that the Native Americans have a very rich way of life that she feels drawn to. As the series goes on, um, you get to know Nathaniel's daughter, Hannah, who is um, Elizabeth's stepdaughter. You get to see the children that Elizabeth and Nathaniel have together. And you also get to know some of the, the white settlers in both good and bad ways. Um, this is an incredibly nuanced book and series. Um, Stacy and I were talking about not too long ago, just the, the plethora of books where Native American romance exists, but it always feels like kind of cringy and gross. I shouldn't say always, but often. And what I loved about this is the deep respect that Donati conveys for everything that went on during that time. Like she doesn't whitewash anything. You get to really know the horrors that the white settlers visited upon the Native Americans. And although parts of it are difficult to read, I think it is an important part of history sort of bound up in this romance that makes it very authentic and very respectful, you know, without kind of making it seem like white people were better than we actually know them to be. So this is Into the Wilderness, the Wilderness Saga, book one by Sarah Donati. If you read this in commercial audio, Kate Redding reads Ooh, it. I love and her. And it is a like phenomenal, her. phenomenal experience. These are long, sweeping books. Um, and I, I love them with every ounce of my soul. How many books so, are in this series? Six. Six. Okay. Because I only read three. Okay. So every once in a while, I stumble upon an author and I get very excited about books. And Emily Royal is one of these authors that was sort of like I found by accident. 
And I don't mean that to minimize who she is. I just mean for me personally, I wasn't searching for her when I found her, but um, I found her because I'm always looking for books with like tortured heroes or scarred kind of beauty and the beast sort of like trope. But I'm actually not going to talk about the beauty and the beast sort of trope that I have by her. I'm going to talk about the fourth and final book in a series. Again, I feel like I'm, I keep talking about the final books in series tonight, but I'm talking about the prize fighter's heart. And that is headstrong hearts book four by Emily Royal. This book is about Dorothea Hart. And when this book starts, she is celebrating her 30th birthday and everyone in her family has just accepted that she's going to be the spinster. She's going to be the spinster aunt who helps them raise the children. She's going to be the one that doesn't get the happily ever after, who's going to be the sibling that just stays around to help whatever sibling needs her the most as they're raising their children. And she lives this very plain, unscandalous life. But all of that is going to change because she sneaks out one night to watch this prize fighter called the Mighty Oak fighting in the yard of an inn. And she's very fascinated, shall we say, by this man and the way that he fights and then the way that he wins and the way that women flock to him after he wins. Because even though she might look like a plain and dowdy spinster of 30, Dorothea Thea Hart has always wanted to be a mother. She's always wanted to have a family, but because her family came up from poverty and now are kind of on the cusp of respectable society, she never had the opportunity to kind of win the heart of a respectable gentleman where she could have the life that she's always wanted. Until her 30th birthday party when she's actually caught in what looks to be a compromising position with Griffin Oak, AKA the mighty Oak, the prize fighter. And she has no choice after this because of the time period in which she lives, but to marry Griffin to keep not only her reputation intact, but the spotless reputation cultivated by her banker brother intact. And so Thea goes off to the country and in the country, she is expected to be the plain and respectable sort of person to teach and educate the sort of hoyden teenage daughter of Griffin Oak, the mighty Oak. And so Thea is trying to cultivate a relationship with this very wayward girl. And she's trying to live in a home with a husband who is completely ignoring her. And all she wants is a family and a love of her own. And she sort of begins to win over her stepdaughter and to win over the household. And Griffin is very attracted to Thea, but his first wife taught him that, you know, marriage is something to 
not be trusted and that, you know, love is something that can come back to bite you in the end. And this book just was very lovely. I enjoyed the romance between Thea and Griffin quite a lot, but even more than the romance, I enjoyed the sort of coming into herself of Dorothea Hart, who kind of learned strength and confidence through her marriage of convenience. She learned that she was more than the spinster sister, that she had confidence and beauty kind of more than she ever expected that she deserved love and kindness and respect. And I really, really love this book for that. Um, It wasn't your typical kind of, you know, historical British romance with the young sort of gorgeous kind of ingenue of the temps or like diva or whatever you like. um, That's not the right word, not diva. Um, but you know, it's, it's not the first one, the diamond of the first Walter. It wasn't like that. You know, (laughs) she's 30 years old and has kind of sort of like, you know, decided that she's going to have this life of mediocrity before all of this happens to her. And it's just a lovely story of her coming into her own and teaching not only Griffin, not only his daughter, not only his household, but a whole town that she is worthy of regard. And I loved it so very much. So this is um, The Prize Fighter's Heart, Headstrong Hearts, number four by Emily Royal. And I really, really enjoyed this book and also the third book in the series as well, Hidden Heart. Um, And I will read Queen of My Heart also at some point in the first book as well that I'm blanking on the name, but I really liked Emily Royal's writing and I'm looking forward to reading more by her in the future. She's quite a delightful author to discover by accident. I have never heard of her. I hadn't either. She was quite a surprise. So my second book of the evening is The Wicked Godmother, A House for the Season by Marion Chesney or her other name, M.C. Beaton. We have a spinster, Harriet Metcalf, and they're in the country when her, she is tasked with putting twins, Sarah and Annabelle, through a season in London. And and that's Stacy's favorite part. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the London season. The London season. In the Regency. And so they decide that they were going to, they're going to go to London before the season starts so that they can rent a house and get everything set up. Mind you, um, Miss Medcalf is only a few years older than the twins. So she really has no idea what a London season entails since she has no dowry. Um, the lawyer rents them a, a townhouse in London. And what's interesting about this townhouse is that there's a parcel of servants downstairs who considers themselves family. And the servants is what's, what truly makes it 
instead of like a little town, the servants make it, um, they're personable, they're lovable, and all you do is you're rooting for the people downstairs too. Um, so Miss Metcalf decides that she's going to present the girls and take them out into the season. When she runs into the Duke of Huntington and he <laughs> decides that he is going to port her, but she wants none of it. She thinks that she is not worthy because she has no fortune and all she wants is to get the twins married. There is a series of events that Miss Metcalf is trying to make the Duke marry these twins. And all these twins can see is that Miss Metcalf is taking all their suitors. Um, <laughs> the twins, Annabelle and Sarah, are um, they're not very nice. And they, through a series of circumstances and events, try to malign oh i like that word <laughs> uh, medcalf's <laughs> reputation and the servants try their best to encourage the duke in his pursuits of miss medcalf this is the wicked godmother by marion chesney so this is um, one of my first romances I read when I was very young and I thought it was like the greatest thing of all time. It was the first time I ever learned about seven dials in the rookeries of London. It was the first time I learned about the season, the ton, the, just the whole like all max. All it was max my first, I guess. Lemonade. Yeah. Yes. I'm going to say it was my first Regency in the history of my life. And even though now I need, I need more sexy times if I'm being honest and more everything. I really have a soft spot in my heart for this book because it was the first I ever read of this genre way back in the day. I won't say how long ago. So my next book starts a romp of a series. If you're looking Ooh. for something fun and smart and full of diversity in all of the best ways. I highly recommend The Wild Winchesters by Erica Ooh. Ridley. This is the Duke heist. It's the first book in the series. It's not actually the first one I read. Um, I read The Perks of Loving a Wallflower first, which is the second book. But this one starts it out. So what you need to know about the Winchester family is that they are not related by blood. The Baron adopted a group of six orphans. Some of them have disabilities. Some of them are people of color. They were all orphans needing a place to go. And he decided that he was going to adopt them. Now, what he also decided is that they were going to be like picture like Robin Hood kind of, right? Like yes. you're going to set right various wrongs. And sometimes these are wrongs against like a specific individual um, sometimes they're wrongs against like a group, 
but he wanted them to use all of their various talents to make a difference, a positive difference in the world. And so when we meet this family, the Baron, unfortunately, has just died. And his last, yes, and his last request was that his children work together to retrieve a stolen painting. And this is a painting that they are very attached to because in a way it sort of symbolizes everything about like the, the family that they have become. So Chloe is, she views herself as kind of forgettable. She can blend into the crowd. Like people don't really pay attention to her. And in a lot of ways, like this makes her sad because she never really feels seen. But at the same time, it allows her to gain all kinds of information from people. And this is very useful when your family, you know, is always looking to, you know, right the next wrong. So she begins to attend this reading circle because the man whose family has this painting is courting the woman who runs this reading circle. So she begins to pay attention to this circle and she wants to figure out, you know, how she can get close to this Duke and, you know, get, get this painting. Now I'm not going to tell you how, but she ends up sort of accidentally abducting the Duke. Whoops. (laughs) Wait, how do you accidentally abduct somebody? Ah, well, (laughs) I cannot tell you how, but trust me, she does. And it is an accident. Um, and this, this, you know, is kind of a problem. So now she has to come up with like a, a further kind of ruse to not let the Duke know, you know, who she is and that she's really interested in this painting. And so she starts like spending time with him kind of under the guise of wanting to have a season and wanting to make, you know, an advantageous match, but because, they are not nobility, like, you know, their adopted father was a baron, but they, according to society, like, are, are not, not great. So she needs, like, the patronage of this duke in order to make a match, or so she tells him. Now, the duke, Lawrence, has had a difficult past. Um, his father was kind of a wastrel, um, and he did a lot of damage to the family and to other people as you figure out as the story goes on and he is just like really desperate to fit in somewhere to have all of the great things that the Winchesters have as a family and so part of this story is about recovering the lost painting but part of it is also this romance that blossoms between Chloe and Lawrence and how they kind of embrace like the Winchesters kind of pull him in to their circle at first kind of unwillingly because they don't they don't have a lot of reason to trust him but slowly they open up their hearts to him and he becomes one of them but then you know we we can't forget about the painting and why does he have the painting like when it's it's not his like how did this come to pass and can Chloe and her siblings get it back without jeopardizing this burgeoning relationship that not only Chloe, but the Winchesters as a whole are starting to have with the Duke. 
there are three books out in this series so far. Um, this one, then The Perks of Loving a Wallflower and Nobody's Princess, which I am waiting for um, from my public library. But I am so, so excited for people to read and love these books. They are like everything that you want in like a good sort of heist book with tons of found family um, and a really, really charismatic romance. I love it so, so much. So this is The Duke Heist, Wild Winchesters, book one by Erica Ridley. And it's, Moira Quirk reads I was gonna these, say. and they are so good. Like her narration is stellar. These books are stellar. It's just like a win-win combination. Read them now. Never mind just today, like right now. So my next book of the evening was a surprise to me. And the author was quite a surprise to me because I am a snob. I will admit it right here. Stacy is a snob. I don't A, like closed door romance and B, I don't like inspirational romance. Both of these things often make me cringe. <laughs> cringe hard. Georgina's dog, Sadie, is cringing as well because I don't like these like things. closed door romance. No, or no. inspirational <laughs> romance. Now, I learned about Elizabeth Camden years ago because there was a review of one of her books on Smart Bitches Trashy Books. And at that time, I was like, this looks good. But then I like looked at her and I'm like, oh, she's an inspirational author. Nope, bye-bye. I don't want religious like stuff in my romance. I want there to be banging. I want there to be kissing. And so I never looked at Elizabeth Camden again until last week. And I decided based on a bunch of reviews that I read that I wanted to try some of her work because of the extensive research it has said that she is, has done on different eras of history to write her books. And so I went through her extensive catalog of titles and I decided to start with A Daring Venture and that's Empire State Book Two. And I was so intrigued. I've now read three of her books. But A Daring Venture is about Rosalind Warner. And Rosalind is actually a biochemist in the early part of the 20th century, within the first decade of the 20th century. And she is very, very passionate about clean water. Because as you learn in the prologue of this book, Rosalind lost some family members because they drank water that wasn't perfectly cleaned. And what I learned about this is that, and what I never thought about before reading this book is there were many, many waterborne diseases back in the day that could have been prevented by ensuring uncontaminated drinking water. And this is Rosalind's passion. And so in, I want to say it's 1908, it's around, it's in the first decade of the 20th century. She is living in New Jersey and she is working with a group of scientists on a court case that has been kind of contested now for two years to like talk about other ways of 
cleaning the drinking water for the city. The judge has determined after two years that the current um, filtration system is most likely adequate for filtering out contaminants that can lead to waterborne diseases, but he is willing to give the scientists another 90 days to kind of show him their reasons for wanting to add chemicals to the water. And that's how we meet Rosalind. Well, then we have Nick Drake, and he is the newly appointed commissioner of water for New York. And Nick Drake is interesting. He was actually just your average everyday plumber until after generations, he finally came into the money that should have been part of his immediate family since his grandfather's day. And once he became a millionaire, everything changed in his life. I guess so. I would think so as a plumber who works underground in the sewers of New York. And now he's a millionaire. millionaire. Correct. Now everybody, you know, he's sought after by women and everything, but you know, he's not quite respectable in New York society. Like people like, you know, he's like in the muck of the sewers. And so as much as he now has the money that is needed by New York society, he's not necessarily considered a classy attendee or a classy person to add to New York society kind of gatherings. But Nick doesn't really care. All he wants is for his daughter to grow up in the society that was always denied to him. He wants his daughter to have the best of everything and to have the education, the class, the knowledge that he lacked as a kid growing up sort of on the poorer side of New York City. And it's not that he doesn't like sort of kind of see where Rosalind and her team of scientists is coming from. But he needs a little bit more proof and more testing before he's willing to, you know, back the fact that possibly adding chlorine to water is actually safe and not poisonous. But he also don't poison the water because it's what his daughter could be drinking. But as, you know, Nicholas and Rosalind are on opposite sides of this huge years long court battle. They're also sort of like beginning to have a romantic connection in real life that is sort of muddying the waters, if you will, for some, what would that be, hyperbole? I don't know. And so as he gets to know Rosalind better, he's interested in what she has to say, but yet he is not trusting of what she's actually trying to do. And so this book is about their romance. It's about like learning how, you know, waterborne diseases were so prevalent at that time. It's about science. It's about family and different sort of struggles within a family system. And this book was lovely in every way, shape or form. Um, Even though it's sort of categorized within the inspirational romance category, For those of us who feel a little uncomfortable with that sort of designation, 
have no fear. This book is not a bunch of praying or preaching. Um, there might be a prayer to at breakfast. There might be mentions of going to church, but that's about it. And most of it is about a, the romance between Rosalind and Nick and B the history of this very tumultuous sort of time in early 20th century, New York and New Jersey. And this book is all about like the beginnings of science in terms of how it can impact drinking water and like what we now take for granted, you know, that 120 some years ago was like something to be feared instead of something to be applauded. This book was absolutely lovely. And I really, really enjoyed the research that Elizabeth Camden did into this and also just the story that she told. Um, this is a daring venture, Empire State, book two by Elizabeth Camden, Camden, and I will be reading more by this author. It was my first book, but definitely not the last. My third book of the evening is the Duke and I, Bridgerton series, book one, by Julia Quinn. Bridgerton. Now, I have never read a Julia Quinn book before, so this was a treat, and I will be looking for the rest of this series. I think I saw that there were eight total. Yes. Um, plus a little short stories, which she calls um, epilogues or second epilogues. Yes. I those are so cool. saw those. Um, so we have the Bridgerton family who the taunt makes fun of because they all have letters of the alphabet. So the oldest brothers, Anthony, then Benedict, and then they, for all the letters they go down like that so there's eight children four boys and four girls and this story is about Daphne which is the oldest daughter and all the Bridgertons look alike with their same brown hair their same coloring the same features Daphne meets um Simon who is a Duke in his own right and he comes back from touring the all of Europe and Africa and he does not want to do anything with London society when he meets his old friend Anthony and Anthony says oh come to the ball and he ends up meeting Daphne by accident when she's being proposed to by another suitor and Daphne's had enough with this suitor who punch she punches him <laughs> and for a woman of this time um Simon is quite shocked that she punches the suitor in the face and knocks him out <laughs> and so they, they meet over this um, prone figure and are trying to decide what to do with him. Um, and they decide to leave him there and go back to the ball when 
Anthony realizes that he's interested in his sister. I mean, that Simon is interested in his sister. Um, but not in a sexual way. They, he wants to be friends at first. And this is um, an interesting series because the brothers scare off all Daphne's suitors, but none of them see that. And they don't see that, which I find funny. Um, The mother is quite adamant that she will marry someone. And so she takes her around all these different um, balls and all Macs and all these different places. Now, Daphne decides that she's going to head off her mother and so does Simon because he doesn't want all the eligible ladies to be thrown at him by pretending to be engaged. Now, this backfires spectacularly and um, they are forced to marry. Um, But then they have to there is quite a bit of drama that goes on in their marriage. Daphne and Simon have to navigate um, different things because they each want different things from their marriage. This is The Duke and I, Bridgerton series, book one by Julia Quinn. So this is not my favorite in the series. Um, There are some troubling things around consent um and if you've seen like the Bridgerton uh season one on Netflix like you you know about it but I didn't realize it was a thing yeah there's a lot of um a lot of like things around consent here in a way that we don't often see in historical romance like it's it's the man who who isn't consenting to some things and I think like that particular scene landed like really, really wrong. And for a lot of people, it has, you know, caused them not to want to read the rest of the series. I will say that the rest of the series is markedly better in that way than um, the first book is. And the Bridgerton family is just like in general, a delight. Many of us here love Elizabeth Hoyt's Maiden Yes. And for a long time, I've kind of lamented that there's nothing really like it. So while what I'm going to talk about isn't really like Maiden Lane per se, it does have some nods to it that I really appreciated. Plus, Shanna Galen is just excellent in, in all the ways. So this is No Earls Allowed, Survivors, book two by Shanna Galen. And this is a series about a group of men who were part of the Napoleonic Wars and came back kind of irrevocably changed. Um, I can't tell you kind of in what ways they were changed because a lot of that is revealed as the series goes on. But these are men who are carrying around just quite a lot of emotional baggage, both from things that happened to them like prior to the war, but also the things that they were forced to do in the war. So this is the story of Juliana. Juliana is the daughter of an Earl and she is unconventional in the way that like so many of the best romance heroines are. 
when we meet her, she is running this like ramshackle orphanage that's falling <gasps> apart. Oh. And there's all these boys that live there. Hence like the, the maiden lane nod that I, I referenced, but she is trying to keep this orphanage afloat. And it is very, very difficult. Like she's running out of funding. Her father has suddenly decided that he would just be better if she just got married. Like all the stuff with the orphanage, she just needs to get over it, he figures. So he really wants to like marry her off. And she's not about this. And then she meets Neil Rexel. And he is like, if there is the equivalent of like a male Mary Sue in terms of like, <laughs> being able to do like everything effortlessly. Um, when you first meet Neil, like that's what you think of him because he is like a great leader. You know, he commanded um, troops in the war and people are kind of just drawn to him. Like they follow him. Um, he's also like a really good soldier, a really good fighter. He is excellent at repairing things, which comes in handy as this orphanage is kind of falling down around Juliana and the orphans. And so at first, when you meet him, you're kind of like, wow, like, you know, is he just kind of like this perfect specimen of, of herodom? But it turns out like he is a lot deeper and has a lot more complexity as the story goes on. And so you kind of get to see like beneath the mask of perfection, which I really liked. I liked seeing who he really was and why for him, like perfection felt so important. Um, Juliana is kind of our like spitfire heroine. Um, she doesn't let society sort of dictate like what she's going to do. And when her father is determined to marry her off, like this is really hard for her. Like it's not what she wants. And she's trying to figure out a way to sort of combat this because she knows that if she gets married, you know, her husband's not going to let her spend all of her time you know, with orphans. And she's going to have responsibilities that she actually finds kind of frivolous. Like she knows that the world is an unfair place. She wants to make a difference for people who aren't born like into privilege. But, you know, we know that like the upper crust society isn't interested in this, like beyond kind of the um, like optics of, of charity. So when Juliana meets Neil, she realizes that he can assist her in a lot of ways and that it might not make her father or society very happy, but he might be the answer to her prayers. Um, so they kind of join forces and sometimes it works well, sometimes it doesn't, but Along the way, they, you know, fall in love and there's just tons of banter, tons of antics from like the boys in the orphanage, um, again, like Maiden Lane here, but it is just so much fun. This is a series that I think tackles a lot of, of deeper issues in kind of a lighthearted way. And if you look beneath that sort of veneer of like light, fluffy, you know, like rompy fun, you discover kind of the, the hidden depths, both to the characters and to the world that Galen has created. If you've never read Ashana Galen, I highly recommend her. Um, her Covent Garden Cubs series is also really excellent. Um, but I think the, the Survivor series is probably my favorite. So this one is No Earls Allowed. 
and it is Survivors, book two by Shanna Galen. And you've been recommending Shanna Galen to me for quite some time. I have. And I have not read her yet. Um, Unmask Me If You Can is on my wish list because of all the reasons, all the things. So I love when you kind of like dovetail in. And speaking of two sides of London meeting in unconventional ways, that's going to be my final book of the evening. It's a book that I purchased on Audible quite a while ago, maybe a year ago, actually, but never read until recently. And it's called The Duke Undone. And it's The Duke Undone, book one by Joanna Lowell. Oh, I have if you, this. Yes. And if you read it in commercial audio, it is read by the incomparable Mary Jane Wells. Like she is oh, she's- probably one of the reasons this book was a solid five-star read for me. This book is about Lucy Coover, and she is an artist, an aspiring artist in training at the Royal Academy. And she, one morning, quite early, is walking to the omnibus from her section of London in the East End. And it's either 1880 or 1881, so it's like late Victorian era. And she's walking, and she's looking at sort of the sunrise and the way that it looks. And all of a sudden she steps on something foreign in the alleyway and it feels crunchy under her foot. And she looks down and realizes that what she has stepped on is a human hand. And she once stepped on rags and a rat squirted out and she stepped on like onions and other vegetables, but never in her life has she stepped on a human hand attached to a human arm, which is attached to the most beautiful naked body of a man sprawled out in her alleyway on the way to the omnibus. And so Lucy looks down as one would and is completely ensnared with the way the body looks in the light and the sort of confirmation of the man's makeup. But once she sees that he's actually not a cadaver and that he's actually breathing, she covers him with her shawl and pays a young boy to kind of keep his eyes on the man until he awakens. And then she goes off to art classes. But Lucy is never able to forget the body that was so perfectly sprawled out for her delectation in the alleys of the rookeries of London, in the East End of London. And when her aunt is in need of a new sewing machine so she can make beautiful dresses for the actresses of London, in her sewing shop, she paints the naked body of this man and sells it. Not knowing that who she has painted is actually a duke. And she 
doesn't know that who she is painting is the new Duke of Weston, whose name is Anthony Philby. And the way that he, Anthony Philby, the new Duke of Weston, discovers this is when a young society wife purchases his naked picture. And her husband thinks that he, that she has been having an affair with the notorious Duke of Weston. The whole family, all the children in the family are notorious. And so why wouldn't his young and beautiful wife be having an affair with the very beautifully detailed naked Duke of Weston? Well, Anthony is quite surprised by his naked likeness and tracks down the place where it was painted and discovers that it was actually a young woman who painted his naked likeness and thus begins a very unconventional romance that spans class differences. And all that Lucy cares about when the novel begins is that her beloved great aunt might lose her dress shop in an Elizabethan house, Elizabethan building, to demolitionists who want to take it down for profit, even though the building is actually in perfect shape and they are doing it for nefarious reasons. So Lucy and Anthony begin this very interesting and sort of clandestined kind of love affair. And he is fighting some pretty significant demons while all she wants is to become sort of known within her peers um, as an artist, which is hard in 1881 because she is in fact a woman. So doesn't actually get all the perks of the men who are part of um, the Royal Academy of London of art. And so the two of them kind of, you know, come to an understanding. He will help to, sh- to save her aunt's, great aunt's dress shop if she can do some research. Because as the new Duke of Weston, one of his goals is to figure out what happened to his sister, Effie. Now, Effie is this very bright and vivacious young woman who married a man of questionable morals who was part of some sort of like acrobatic circus type thing. And now she has disappeared into East End London, into the music halls and theaters of that district. And so he thinks that maybe Lucy can help find his sister. Now, what kind of like elevates this book and makes it stand apart is that Anthony is not your typical romance hero. He is very attractive, which makes him to some people very swoon-worthy. But, you know, for a lot of the novel, he doesn't have the strongest character. He's battling some pretty significant demons, both internal and external, that make him not quite as outwardly strong as what we're used to seeing in a romance hero. He has weaknesses. He has struggles. He has sort of things that kind of set him apart from your average hero, which to me makes him more interesting. 
And then we have Lucy, who doesn't at all fit in with what we expect of a romance heroine from this time frame. She's not part of the tall. She doesn't go to balls. She is of the working class. She's trying to help her aunt keep her sewing shop afloat. But she's also very, very passionate about kind of pursuing her career as an artist and getting her name and her paintings out there so that people can recognize the talent that she has and what she can share with the world. This book was lovely for the romance. Um, Part of it made me cry. Um, But what I also liked about it was sort of reading about the disparity between Lucy's way of life and Anthony's way of life. They're both oppressed for very different reasons. Um, As Shannon can attest, there was one scene that was quite horrifying to me that included mice that I will never forget for the rest of my life. Um, But overall, this book was lovely and nuanced and dynamic and had way more depth of character and depth of writing than your average sort of British historical romance. And I'm very, very excited to read the other two books in this series. So this was The Duke Undone, Duke Undone book one, and it's by Joanna Lowell. She's made kind of a splash um, in sort of the historical circles, and I'm excited to check her out. I bought this like when it first came out, and just because I have a lot of things that I buy, um, I don't always read them as soon as I would like. And so this one is one of them that's kind of just languishing, but I do plan to pick it up pretty soon. My last book of the evening is a classic and made me realize how much I wanted to study not only anthropology, but Egyptology. (laughs) Yes. This is Crocodile on the Sandbank by Elizabeth Peters. This brings back so many memories of being young. Yes, and, so much. You know, just listening to these stories on tape. Um, Barbara Rosenblatt reads. Yes, yes, all of them, and, and they were all of them. Okay. So we have Amelia Peabody, who is the youngest of six children and the apple of her papa's eye. Um, he was a historian translating a lot of papers and Egypts and different languages and other things when he dies and leaves Amelia his fortune to the dismay of all her brothers, considering that nobody had a problem until they discovered the amount that he left Amelia. Ooh. <clears throat> she decides that she's going to tour um, Egypt and parts of Europe, like Italy, when her companion that she hires falls ill with typhoid. As one does. As one does. Yes. <laughs> she drank filtered water that wasn't quite clean enough, right? <laughs> she probably yes, <laughs> <laughs> And um, so Amelia is in Italy when she comes across a young woman who has fainted named Evelyn. And so 
Amelia fancies herself a kind of healer. And <laughs> so she realizes that there's nothing wrong with Evelyn except some. she needs some food and she's cold. So she takes Evelyn under her wing and decides that they're going to travel to Egypt. And <clears throat> Amelia decides that she's going to contact all her father's correspondence people that she knows and can introduce her into different parts of Egypt or help her in any way. And when she's there, they're touring the museum when she meets the Emersons. And the Emersons are two brothers named Walter and Radcliffe. And Radcliffe is described as a big man with piercing blue eyes and white teeth, right? (laughs) 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 And so... Emerson is quite loud because Amelia is touching one of the antiquities and that sets him off into a temper. No touching. And Walter is quite enamored of Evelyn. Now these two separate the the two um, peoples, Evelyn and Amelia and Walter and Radcliffe into their two different things that they're doing. The Emersons to a dig site, Amelia to tour the pyramids when they um, end up together by accident. Um, This goes through their adventures. Someone is trying to scare Evelyn And it's up to Amelia and gang to figure out why and who. There are 20 books in this series. (gasps) This is Crocodile on the Sandbank by Elizabeth Peters. So I think what I liked about these, like especially back, like when I, you know, was reading them, like in my earlier kind of reading life, was kind of this blending of like romance and mystery and all of these locations that, you know, at yes. that point like you didn't really see yes. in, in fiction. No. And I think too, the fact that for me, what kind of drew me to these was the blend of romance history and yes. the sort of like rough edged hero. Um, that was very important to me in part of my reading. Um, but I think that also, the reading um, that was so skillfully done, if you're reading it in audio at the time, by Barbara Rosenblatt, really sort of brought this series to life for me. So this concludes our <laughs> foray into historical romance. Thank you so much to Georgina and Stacy for participating tonight. Thanks, as always, goes out to Christine for all of her editing. I beg your forgiveness for the occasional meowing that you may have heard tonight. (laughs) We have a Siamese who has recently come to live with us. And if you know anything about Siamese, you know that they have a great many things to say. And it is late at night. And that is Amira's prime time. And she probably likes serenading romance, apparently. Maybe she does. Well, she read Courtney (laughs) Milan with me earlier. So, but anyway, so if you hear some meows. 
Okay. Yeah, that's yeah we, we have a lot of like animal participation this evening. It's a shame we didn't have Sarah with Pepper and Brooke with the puppies. Like we could have had like a, a whole convention of like historical romance. Menagerie. Menagerie. <laughs> and thank you so much to all of you who join us each week, whether you have animals or not, <laughs> as we talk about great books. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, It kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody.